Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for your many, many blessings. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the reality upon which you have created all things, work in harmony with you and your kingdom. We pray that you will lead us in our class today to grow ever closer to you and make us more effective in advancing your cause on this earth. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson eight in the quarterly Psalms, and the title is Wisdom for Righteous Living. Wisdom for Righteous Living. And the question, of course, first is, what is wisdom? Is wisdom and IQ the same thing? Is wisdom and, and knowledge the same thing? There's a lot of AIs out there that have lots of knowledge, lots of data, lots of facts. I wouldn't necessarily say they have any wisdom at all. So what is wisdom? Knowing how to use knowledge. Knowing how to use knowledge. I think it's a very succinct and, and pithy way to say it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a little wordier than that. <laughs> but wisdom is the ability to discern, differentiate, prioritize, and choose what is actually, in reality, healthy, right, true, good. What is the best conclusion, course, action in any given situation? Uh, the ability to use knowledge. I should have just called you. <laughs> Can wisdom be achieved? Now understand, do, do you all agree with that idea of wisdom? Yep. Yes. yes. Yeah. Can you achieve wisdom by following a list of rules? No. Can you achieve wisdom at all? What do you all think? My answer is yes. 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 You can analyze it and then get a lot of wisdom. There you go. I, I think we are called to grow up into the maturity, to have the mind of Christ. That is what we're expected to become, wise. Jesus said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And we're called to have wisdom. So I, I think it is certainly something we are to develop, but I don't think we can get there in our own human abilities. So can wisdom be achieved by following a list of rules? No. How about if the, if the rules are the correct ones, the right ones? The Bible ones, the rules given by God himself. Can we get wisdom by following those rules? A little bit more hesitation there. And the answer, um, in my view, is no. Because wisdom requires understanding the reasons. Rule keeping, even if it's the right rules, impairs understanding if we're doing it for the purpose of rule keeping. That's the part. Because we can get wisdom from, if we analyze the rules, and, but we have to ask the question, why? But rule keepers don't ask that question. She says, you have to ask the question, why? Blessed are the wise, W-H-Y-S. <laughs> Blessed are the wise, why, why, why? Yes, I asked a lot of whys growing up. Can you believe it? Yeah. <laughs> so legal religions that, that emphasize simply, and, the, and when you ask the why, the answer is? Because I said so. <laughs> because I said so. Because God said so. Because the Bible said so. Because the red leather books said so. Yeah. You ever heard any of those answers? And because you'll get hurt if you don't do this. Well, see, now there's a different reason there. Because you'll get hurt. But the question is, by who? Well, by my belt? 
by God? Okay, so if the answer is ultimately an inflicted, an inflicted you'll get hurt, it's still the same thing. Do it because I said so or else. Okay, and does that type of rule keeping lead to wisdom? Was L.O.I. call it a blind, stupid credulity? Yes. Something like that? Yes. In fact, it impairs. This is the point. Legal religions interfere with growing in godly wisdom because they keep believers functioning as children on spiritual milk. It says in Hebrews 5. And we're not suggesting, I want to hear this very clearly, not suggesting that babes in Christ, the infants in Christ, are not saved or don't love Jesus. There's, we're just simply describing reality. We all start out in a newborn experience as newborns in Christ. That's how we all start out, okay? And as newborns in Christ, the rules initially can be very helpful, just like a child's, their parents' rules can be very helpful in the growing up. But what happens if they never grow past the rules? I was, I'm very thankful. My mother had a rule when I was growing up that I had to brush my teeth. I'm very thankful because I'm sure sure you've heard it said you only brush and floss the ones you want to keep. (laughs) And I wanted to keep mine, so I'm I'm glad I I, I have been doing that. But how sad would it be when I went off to college and I was brushing my teeth if a roommate saw me and said, what are you doing? Brushing my teeth. Well, why are you doing that? Well, my mother has a rule. (laughs) I'm still doing the right thing. But would I be wise? Or would I be a child? You learn the wisdom of the rule. Yes, you eventually learn the wisdom of the rule and it becomes part of, well, I want to do that freely. And then was the rule needed anymore? It was no longer needed because it's written in the heart. Okay, this is what wisdom is, understanding reality, understanding God's character, his design laws, his purposes, understanding the problem, the circumstance, the situation, then applying God's methods his design laws to the circumstance, bringing his principles to bear on the problem to apply a solution. If one follows a list of rules, applying those rules in all circumstances without understanding the design laws of God, the situation, the principles, the circumstances, then one will follow the rules, seeking to do good, believing they're doing good and cause harm. They will injure. They will actually end up being working against God while they're keeping the rules and claiming that they're honoring God. Can you think of any examples of people who were keeping the rules given by God, claiming they were honoring God, where they're working actually against God? The Pharisees. How many times did they accuse Jesus of breaking the rules? How many times? You keep breaking the rules. And the apostles, you keep breaking the rules. Healing on the Sabbath, pulling heads of grain. I mean, come on. Isn't a fasting good? Couldn't they have just waited a few more hours, fasted the day? I mean, wouldn't that have been good for them, healthy? I mean, they didn't need to pull those heads of grains. And the man, 38 years paralytic. Jesus clearly could have waited till after the Sabbath. This was non-emergency. He was not hemorrhaging to death, not having a heart attack. He could have clearly waited for the 38-year paralytic to heal him after the Sabbath. He didn't need to open his office on Sabbath. He could have kept it closed through the Sabbath hours. You're seeing Jesus broke their rules on purpose. Why? And they accused him. And they wanted to stone him. Because they were applying rules without understanding the design laws of God. And thus, even though they were thinking they were wise, they became fools. Rejecting the creator, the Lord of the Sabbath, 
and then wanting him off the cross so they could keep the Sabbath of the Lord they just killed. That's law keeping without understanding principles. This is what happened to, with all human governments. All human governments end up with rules that are applied by some in blind circumstances without understanding the situation that cause harm. Do I need to give examples? Oh, we don't have to go far. Think of COVID. People driving alone in their cars, wearing masks. Outside, no one close, wearing masks. Outside by themselves, on a beach, alone, wearing a mask because there's a rule. Got to keep the rule. Law enforcement officers giving tickets to people sitting alone in their cars, listening to a sermon in a parking lot on a PA system. Do you remember the story? This happened. People being arrested walking alone on a beach or a park because they didn't wear a mask. Or do you remember people going to sporting events and all the people in the bleachers had masks on and all the players on the field didn't? Yeah. <laughs> Think that through. No one questioned that. Oh, okay, there's a, there's a special energy bubble on the field that viruses can't penetrate. It is a cognitive blindness. Blind, when you surrender your thinking to voices of authority. And this is the goal. Much of what all happened that we saw, the, one of the primary goals was to condition people to stop thinking and to surrender their thinking to voices of authority and follow rules without thought. This is how religions have, have worked through history. And religious leaders have worked through history with voices of religious authority, do it or else you'll be punished. The exact opposite of what Jesus has taught. Come, let us reason together that your sins are like scarlet. We are called to reason and think. Paul wrote in Romans 1, 21 to 23, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the image made to look, images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They claimed to be wise. Talking about wisdom, but they became fools. Because of the law of worship, by beholding, we become changed. It's a design law. You will become like what you admire, esteem, worship, internalize, value, look up to. So are the images made to look like mortal man described by Paul restricted to statues? No, this world includes various other God images of self like the evolutionary theology claiming that humans are the highest beings, the gods of this era and age, having evolved, and we will evolve ourselves to the next level of human 2.0 by cybernetic and genetic enhancements. We are the gods of this age. This is a form of replacing the immortal God with, with images made to look like ourselves. But we also do it in churches with the human law theologies, that God's law works like human law made up rules, and the God we worship is, is functions like a Roman Caesar. He uses power to inflict punishment upon rule breakers. And his justice is the same justice as mortal man's, the punishing of lawbreakers. Thus the glory of the immortal God is exchanged, and people worship the mortal man in place of God in their penal substitution theologies. And it seems right 
and good to them when they do this to use the power of their office, of the state, to coerce the consciences of others for a good goal. After all, we do need to save lives, don't we? Or protect the environment. It's the only right to do. And we saw this in our own church. Church leaders used the office that they held to coerce the conscience of their members, their constituents, their students, their patients. You didn't see any organized standing for liberty of conscience, even though we have a religious liberty department. And you should really, really pause and ask, what kingdom are they advancing? Why would they do this? She said it's all about money. It's, it's power, money, authority. But that's the human system. It's a system of rules that require enforcement. But Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. It's heart transformational. So what wisdom have you gleaned from God's word that helps you live righteously? Anybody want to share wisdom that you've gleaned that helps you live righteously? Trust God with all my life. And do you think that people who advance the penal view of things would, would actually argue against that? They say, no, we trust God too. I mean, that you're, you're completely right. I am not ditching that. Oh, absolutely. There's no, in fact, anything that's not of faith or trust is sin, Paul says in Romans 14, 23. So you're 100% right. But does it matter which God you're trusting? Yes. Oh, yes. And so, the, so, so we, and we just read how the exchange of truth of God for a lie, and these people are trusting their God. And I'm suggesting that within Christianity, there's a variety of different gods being worshipped. Not everybody is worshipping God as Jesus revealed him to be. Some have replaced him with a caricature of an authoritarian, rule-making, punishing inflictor, source of pain, suffering, and death that requires that God to receive a blood sacrifice of a human sacrifice so he won't lash out and hurt you. Now, I say it quite, maybe, harshly, but that's what they teach. That is not the God Jesus revealed us, and it's not the message of the three angels. It's not the eternal gospel. Yes? I think, like what you always say, when you present the truth in love and then leave people free to weigh all the options out in their own mind and come to their own conclusion, that's the beautiful thing. And so the, the wisdom here, these are the design laws of God, the law of truth, the law of love, the law of liberty, how relationship, how health, how, how we were created to thrive and live. And, and when I've discovered these laws, it's made a huge difference in my own personal life and how I relate and deal with others. And it gives you great wisdom and discernment when you understand the design laws. You've heard, seen me do this before, but if I let go of this, can you predict what will happen? <laughs> you know you can. And you don't need the gift of prophecy to know that, even though it's a future event. Because you know the laws and things become predictable. And when you know design laws and when you violate them in relationship, you can predict outcomes, how things will go. And when you harmonize with them, you can also predict outcomes. You can predict if a person starts exercising in a way that doesn't cause injury, they don't overexercise. In a healthy way, you can predict that they will actually gain strength. That's a predictable outcome. You can predict if somebody ceases using their abilities, they will atrophy and shrink. Yep. This is the law of exertion. If you want somebody to get stronger, you have to exercise it. Life's, when you understand the design laws, it really gives us insight and wisdom. 
I love the, this paragraph in the book Education. It's on page 190. I'm going I'm to break it out after I read it to you. See if you see wisdom in this paragraph. The student should learn the view that the word is a whole. To see the relation of its parts, he should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy of the work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy and should learn to trace their working through the record of, records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. He should see how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience, how in every act of life he himself reveals the one or the other, the two antagonistic motives, and how whether he will or not, he will... He is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. Is there wisdom in this paragraph? Yeah. So let's just, let's go through the bullet wisdoms that I, that I found, and there's a whole long list of them. Uh, is there wisdom in approaching the Bible as a student? The student should learn to view the word as a whole. Yes, if we go to the Bible as an expert, as the teacher of the Bible, or as a cynic or critic or doubter or somebody who already knows and is just searching for the text to prove what they already know is right, then our hearts and minds are closed to truth and we cannot learn. But if we have a heart and mind of a student recognizing we're finite, we have much to learn and the Bible's a source of God's inspired revelation to us, then we approach the study humbly and the Bible becomes the bread of life to us. So first wisdom is that we always approach the Bible as a student. Viewing the word as a whole. Is there wisdom in uh, viewing the word as a whole? If we take a little here and a little there, we can make the Bible say anything. And I get questions like this all the time where somebody will lift a text, uh, a statement, and just by itself it could appear not so good on the surface and they don't set it in its setting, in its context. Wisdom is recognizing that there is one God, one human race, one sin problem, one solution for the sin problem, and the Bible is teaching this one reality. Recognizing how the various parts relate. Wisdom understands the various parts are teaching the same reality, the same truth, applying the very same principles of God that if we, uh, if we confuse the parts and misconstrue the setting, for instance, misunderstanding the theme of the Old Testament, the entire theme of the Old Testament is Genesis 3.15, the promised Messiah is coming. That's the entire Old Testament story. Everything revolves with, around that central theme. After Adam sinned, no human can be saved except Jesus comes. And so that whole setting is, is the, the working out of the promise and Satan working to stop that promise. But if instead we think it's about a legal relationship with a specific genetic branch of the human family that in Old Testament times could be saved through animal sacrifices, which is taught commonly in certain segments of Christianity that in Old Testament times, salvation was through animal sacrifices, but now it's through the death of Jesus. You get this very confused. The Bible's not a whole anymore. It's, 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 you got different dispensations, dispensation of law, dispensation of grace. Gaining a knowledge of its grand central theme, the grand central theme of the great controversy over God's character and government. Humanity is caught up in a larger war than just what's happening on this planet. And this is in scripture, it's all through scripture. In Colossians, all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Yeah. There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought and, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but they were not strong enough. I mean, all through scripture, there is a larger rally. God has a war in his entire heavenly family. We're caught up in the middle of it. We don't understand that this war is over God's trustworthiness. 
how he does business, then we can actually create all types of theological constructs that are focused on saving you and me that actually make God look bad. God's original purpose for the world, the rise of the great controversy and the work of redemption. God's original purpose. When was, when was the world, this, this earth created? What was happening in the universe when, when God set forth to create planet earth and mankind in his image? The war had already broken out in heaven. And this, and, and this book, the Bible tells us this, this excuse me, this, this planet is a lesson book, a theater to angels. 1 Corinthians 4.9, we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. There were answers that were intended to be learned through Adam and Eve's loyal and faithful reproduction, having children in their image and governing this planet as God governs the universe, a microcosm of the Godhead as the, as the Godhead comes into unity and creates uh, two separate intelligences come into the unity of love and create beings in their image and they were given dominion to govern lesser life forms that could not enter to the full stature of what Adam and Eve could enter, but they would constantly be giving and, and sacrificing themselves for the welfare of all the different life forms on this planet. This was the intention, of a microcosm of the universe where Adam and Eve represents the Godhead because questions about how God governs were, were launched. Understanding the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy, it is wisdom to recognize that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse, Romans 1.20. Design laws that reality operate upon, but it's also wisdom to recognize in Romans 8, all nature groans under the weight of sin that there are two antagonistic principles at work in this planet. Warring against each other. God's principle of love. Greater love is no man than he give his life for a friend. Warring against survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to do to advance myself. Love you so much, I'll do whatever I have to do for your health and welfare, including if it comes down to it, sacrifice my love, that you, my life that you might live versus survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to do to protect myself, including kill you that I might live. These principles are at war in every heart. We are born infected with the drive to survive, me first, fear-driven, justification of any action that makes me advance. And we need cleansing of those motives with a new heart and right spirit that loves God and others for. Greater love is no man than to give his life for his friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. Yes. I've been reading this past week uh, a book, Darkness Before Dawn, by Ellen White. And it, she goes through the fall of Lucifer in heaven. And it was so eye-opening to me, the tactics that he used in heaven are the same tactics that he uses here on earth with people. And uh, she said, if you recognize these traits, then know what spirit it com comes from. By their fruits, you will know yeah. them. Methods and principles, that's exactly right. Learning to trace their working through the re records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. Can you see through all human history, these two powers, God's versus Satan, love, truth, freedom versus fear and selfishness, lies, deceptions, and coercion? You see them warring for hearts and minds. Do you see that these two antagonistic principles are coming to a head as the world is getting closer to the second coming? Do you see these two antagonistic principles played out very intensely worldwide over COVID? Yeah. Yeah. And so many saints 
were duped into accepting and applying the methods of Satan under the guise of doing good. Mm -hmm. Now, some, let's be clear, were just babes. And as babes, they looked to the church leaders to tell them the answers as children looked to parents. And there were many good-hearted babes in the church that were simply doing what they believed was right because the church told them. But there are many church leaders, just like in Christ's day, that should have known better. Nicodemus, you're a leader in Israel. Don't you know this? Jesus said to him, seeing how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience, do we understand that it's not primarily about the behavior, but the motive of the heart that drives the behavior? Are we motivated by truth and love, respect for the freedom and individuality of others? Are we motivated by fear, insecurity, the need to protect self, a willingness to coerce others, to advance ourselves, to make ourselves feel safe? And applying all this to learn how in every act of life, either we are siding with one or the other of these two antagonistic systems. Do you recognize the incredible wisdom in this one paragraph? Sunday's lesson points our attention to Psalms 119. uh, And in the commentary, uh, it seems to equate the word law with the Ten Commandments. For instance, the commentary says in the lesson, God's commandments are a revelation of God's will for the world. They instruct people on how to become wise and to live in freedom and peace. The psalmist delights in the law because the law assures him of God's faithfulness. And when you hear, quote, God's commandments, what does that cause your mind to think of? Think of? Yeah, it's true. The lesson does not say the Ten Commandments. So maybe... The authors don't mean the Ten Commandments, and maybe I'm just conditioned to think that way, and it's, my, it's my, my conditioning is the problem. But I actually think this is an inference to, to box on, in our minds, to lead us to draw a conclusion about the law in the, in the psalm. And I'm going to suggest to you that if your mind... His, has, if you've read that paragraph and you think the commandments of God and then you think the law and then you're now thinking down commandment trails that the, the lesson has just boxed your mind in to conclude things about the law of God that the psalmist was not intending and that in fact the psalmist was to lead drawing away from. And it's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught the following and the, new, the apostles in Jesus taught the following about the law. Galatians 5.14, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. James wrote, if you keep, really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing doing what is right. And of course, Jesus said in Matthew, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Jesus is leading our mind away from rule keeping, away from a list, away from a legal way, away from behavioral, to something happening in the heart and mind. Yes? I'm going to suggest the psalm is not leading us to the Ten Commandments. I'm going to suggest the psalm is leading us to the law of the Lord, which revives the soul and brings life to the soul. And God's design laws are not a list of rules. And in fact, all the written laws, including those written by God himself on stone with his finger, were added and were not always in existence. I say that some people get real agitated and it shows that they actually have never really thought through the question because sin happened in heaven before humankind was made, yes or no? Yes. 
And was there a Ten Commandment law in heaven that angels should not commit adultery? No. That they should honor their mothers and fathers? No. no. That sins will pass down three and four generations? To beings who don't procreate. They should keep the Sabbath. And then the Sabbath, yes, which wasn't even created yet because it was made for man, not for angels. So it, it, it's a real level, and there's a real documentation showing how embedded the imperial law system is, the surrendering of thinking to a higher authority. You don't question, you've been told, rather than actually recognizing how gracious and loving God is that he wrote that in stone because of our need, as Paul says in Galatians. The law was added because we needed it. What a gracious God to do that. What a gracious parent to add a rule to a child who doesn't know to play in the street. I love my kids so much. I made up a rule, don't play in the street. What a gracious God. But you know what? If a, if a child never was ever in danger of playing in the street, there would no be, be no need for the rule. And what's it say about the people that God actually had to tell them? If you love your neighbor, don't murder them. When was the last time you had to say to, you, to your spouse as you went off to work, while I'm at work today, please don't commit adultery with the mailman. I mean, if you had to say that, right? And this was the controversy in 1888 at the Seventh-day Adventist General Conference with the righteousness by faith message of the ongoing outworking reformation advancing the truth that the law in Galatians that was added was the Ten Commandments and the legalistic church leaders rejecting the advancing truth and declaring that the Ten Commandments are eternal and were not added and that God's law is imposed, that sin is legal, it's a legal breaking of the rules, and that righteousness by faith is a legal trick when God declares people to be righteous while they remain unrighteous. They have legal declaration of righteousness while they remain unrighteous. Rather than the biblical truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not be declared righteous while we remain unrighteous. We become the righteousness of God. We actually get set right, put right, healed, renewed, recreated, reborn, regenerated, a new heart and right spirit, the mind of Christ, the heart circumcised by the Holy Spirit, the heart of stone, hard heart taken out, the tender fleshly heart put in. The whole metaphors of scripture are through Jesus Christ, we are transformed and healed. And that was rejected in 1888 by the church. And it has been officially taught in this church that instead, the Ten Commandments were eternal, sin is legal, God is required by law to be the source of inflicted death. He sent his son. He killed him on the cross. You accept the payment. You're declared righteous while you remain unrighteous and continue to live in a wicked life. Striving and confessing and repenting and confessing and repenting in circles of despair because you're still not righteous. We will never finish the Reformation and take the end time message of Revelation 14 to the world and hasten the day for Christ's return as long as we continue to teach God's law functions like human law. The final message that we were given to take to the world is the testimony of Jesus. The testimony that Jesus gave, and Jesus' testimony is what I just read to you. And he rejected the imperial Roman human law construct. And every one of his parables, every single one of them, if you understand the parable, go look at them, we're teaching design law, how reality works. Every single one of them. The Adventist reformers, whose message was rejected by the Adventist legalist in 1888, 
taught the idea that God taught that the idea that God must punish sin in order to be just was Satan's original lie in the opening of the controversy in heaven. You can find that uh, that reference in Desire of Ages 761. It's written as follows. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. Understand that is Satan's view, and that view is what is taught in, in, in the churches today. Because they accept the lie, God's law works like human law, and if you don't punish the lawbreaker, then there's no justice. Everybody gets away with everything. It's so sad. It is sad. Psalms 119 is an incredible psalm that teaches the truth about God's law being design law, yet when people falsely believe that God's law is imposed, they are vulnerable to read the psalms in legal ways as rules enforced by external force. So I'm going to contrast. The lesson wants us to look at 16 verses. We're going to look at eight verses out of this long psalm. We're going to contrast NIV from the remedy. And you'll notice the remedy affirmatively sets this in the setting of design law. And you'll notice, uh, and tell me what you think. So here's Psalms 119 verse 1. We'll look at the first eight verses. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Now, that's the NIV. If you, if you read this through the human law model, how is this heard? Blessed are those who keep the right rules, who don't do bad stuff, who don't do bad deeds. They're blameless. They, their foot is on base. They can't be tagged out. They walk according to the rules. They go to church on the right day. They got baptized in the right way. They pay the right percentage of tithe on a pre, pre-tax tithe. I mean, that, they're blameless. You can't, you can't find fault with what they do. You go ask them to sell everything they have and give it to the poor and see what happens. Here's the remedy. Happy and healthy are those whose characters have been healed, who live in harmony with God's design for life. You see, you actually cannot have happiness and healthiness if you're still sick in heart. You can't have it. And you can't have happiness and healthiness while violating the laws of God. You can't have health while violating the laws of health, whether those, health are, those laws are the physical laws of health or the spiritual laws of health. If you're breaking the laws of health, you cannot have health. And blessed, this also means happy. Happy and healthy is what blessed means. Yep. Next verse. Blessed are, those, blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Mm. You can think about how the legalists might read that. Keep the commandments and seek the proper atonement offered to Jesus, offered to the Father in your behalf with all your heart. Happy and healthy are those who preserve God's principles in their characters and seek him with all their heart. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You're happy and healthy. You keep his statutes. His statutes are love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So you keep him in your heart. This is how you live. Verse three, they, they do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. And the remedy, they do nothing wrong. They walk in the Lord's ways. But how do you hear it? As rules or as healthful living? You have laid down precepts and are, that are to be fully obeyed. You have established the laws upon which life and health are built, and they are to be eagerly observed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Oh, how I wish my nature was established 
to naturally live in harmony with your design protocols for life. Verse 6. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider your command, well, all your commands. Then I would not feel ashamed when I compare my life to your perfect law of love. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. Think about what that means. You learn his righteous laws. You need to learn that Sabbath is from sunset Friday to sunset Sabbath. You need to learn the righteous laws, the right rules. This is how we, and here are the 28 fundamentals. You need to learn them. This is how a legalist would hear this. When your living law of love is assimilated into my mind and character, then I will praise you with a heart that is right with you. That's the real learning. It's not learning a list of rules or the right doctrines. It's learning God's character, learning his methods, his principles, taking them into heart, learning them in practice. And then I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. And from the remedy, I will live in harmony with your specifications for life. Please don't let go of me. Any thoughts? Do you see that the, there's a difference in how we understand the law and how we read these things? I don't think anything that I put in the paraphrase is not in the other version. If you understand design law when you read the other version, you can see it there. But if you have the imperial law version there, then you actually see something else there. What do you do, and this has happened with, especially in our area, with Southern Baptists who say, oh, I only read the King James Version. You can't even get them to, to pick up literature. So I, I would say, and why, why do you read only the King James? Why, yeah. Why do you read the King James? Do you, do you actually talk in King James English? <laughs> I would point out some things. So, so what does it mean that you won't prevent, that those of us who are alive won't prevent the people who are are in the graves when Jesus comes in Thessalonians. It says, we which are alive and, and remain will not prevent those who are in the graves from going to heaven. Are we going to be trying to hold them back into the grave? Ask them. They won't know. Prevent in 1611 meant proceed. Let, let today means to allow. Let in 1611 meant to hinder. So if you're playing tennis and the ball hits the net, you don't get a net ball, you get a let ball. That ball has been hindered by the net. Okay, so there, you can get a book, you can go and look it up. There's um, probably over a thousand words in the King James that have changed their meaning to be almost the opposite. One of the classics is atonement. Atonement in, in 1611 meant to take two parties that are at odds with each other and bring them back into one. The, the, the single word O-N-E, which is the first number in our numerical system, is a noun for us, O-N-E, noun. In 1611, that same word, it was a noun, one, but it also was a verb back in 1611, an action word. And if two people were at odds warring against each other, you could say, I'm going to go and one them. I'm going to go bring them back to oneness, okay? It very quickly became, I'm going to make them all one, or at one, excuse me. I'm going to make them at one. But when you make them at one, it was not pronounced at one, it was pronounced atone, because that's the old English pronunciation, so that when you're all one, you're not all by yourself, you're alone, okay? That's the pronunciation. So atone, actually in 1611, meant taking two people who are at odds and bringing them into unity. That's not what it means today. Atone means appeasement, expiation of some kind, payment of some sort. 
So you can tell them, you can read this scene 11 if you want to confuse yourself and actually obstruct what God has in his word for you. If you actually want to know the truth, you better actually either know, speak 1611 King James and actually understand inherently what those words connote or get a more modern version. So I would actually point this out very quickly that, that they, they know not what they read. Most of them. Most of them have no clue about this. I've, I've talked to a few like this and they don't know. They're like, but the Bible says... Yes, the Bible says in, in Deuteronomy 14 that you should take your tithe and buy fermented wine and celebrate for the Lord. <laughs> That's what it says. Why don't you do it? <laughs> Monday's lesson, third paragraph, says God restrains his righteous wrath and extends his grace anew. The psalmist exclaim, who knows the power of your anger, Psalms 90:11 implying that no one has ever experienced the full effect of God's anger against sin, and so there is hope for people to repent and gain wisdom for righteous living, because you don't want to face that anger, buddy. That's the message I'm hearing. Well, it points us to Psalms 90.11, which in the NIV reads, who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Hmm, what do you think? Is that encouraging? <laughs> Let's read just a little wider in Psalms, 90, in Psalms chapter 90. We'll start in verse 7 and go through verse 13, and we'll compare the NIV with the remedy and see what you think. This is verse 7. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. Here's the remedy. Our sin sickness comes to an end in your presence. Therefore, it terrifies us to be abandoned by you. Now, what do you think is the true meaning? Now, how can I get that meaning from this? Do you understand what God's wrath is? We're going to come, I'm going to, if you don't, I'll, I'll, we're going to, after I go through the psalm, then I'll explain it to you. But God's wrath is letting go, abandoning, leaving people free to reap. And God's anger is towards sin, not the sinner. And he wants to eradicate it. So it should terrify us to be out of his presence. But if you have an imposed law view, then you actually think he's the source of inflicted pain and suffering. And we couldn't, and, and he's angry at us for, be, for having sin. Verse eight, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. From the remedy. Our terminal condition is laid out before you. The corruption most deeply hidden in our souls is exposed in your presence. If you went to the doctor sick and some sickness, don't you want him to put an MRI scanner and an ultrasound and look in the deep recesses to find everything that's wrong? This is David praying, search me and see the wicked way in me, creating me a clean heart, O God, renew your right spirit within me. See, this is not something to be fearful of if you understand design law. And God is the healer, savior, creator. But if you understand him as Roman, imperial, then you do not want to go before him and find all your bad deeds out unless you have the proper legal payment to pay him off so he won't kill you. Yes? I used to be scared of that verse when it said, search me, O God, and know my heart. But once I was born again and I was experiencing peace for the first time, as I was walking with God and getting spiritually older, I would come into points where I'm having a lot of turmoil or something's going on. And then that scripture became actually a blessing because now I know what it means. And because of what you've been teaching here, I know what it means more. And now I can say, you know, pray to God and say, please tell me what is going on in here. What do I have bitterness? Is something growing inside? And created me a clean heart. Heal it. Heal it. Yes. Yeah. Our days pass away under your wrath. We find our years, we, we finish our years with a moan. 
All of our days we struggle to turn away from the selfishness which you hate. Our lives end in mournful meditation. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. And we live for 70 years eight or 80 if we are strong, but our selfishness causes life to be hard, a struggle filled with sorrow. Time flies by so quickly and we pass away. We know the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. This is the verse we just read. Who really knows how angry it makes you that this happened to us? Your wrath to destroy sin is awe-inspiring. Do you understand how angry God must be that his creation in Eden ended up like this? And how awe-inspiring it is that he wants to destroy sin so desperately. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Help us to understand our terminal condition, how short life really is, so that we may have the wisdom to partake of your remedy and experience for new hearts. And then verse, verse 13. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. When will you turn to us, O Lord? Turn and comfort your helpers. And that should be verse 13. It's a little typo there. It says 12. Do you see how the law lens one holds as they go to scripture actually brings a completely different perspective? When the human law lens is used to interpret scripture instead of reading the, the truth about God that removes our fear and restores trust, the scriptures are twisted to cause us to be afraid and we need an intercessor to protect us from him. He's the threat that we have to do something to. This is why the Bible tells us in Revelation 14 that the final message that lightens the world is the message of the eternal gospel, the message that calls people back to worship God as creator and calls people to stop worshiping him as a Babylonian dictator to finally make a right judgment about God. The hour has finally come for him to be rightly judged. To stop judging him as this Roman imperial dictator source of pain and suffering and to see that he's always been on our side. And this leads us to the question about the difference between Satan's wrath and God's wrath. How would you describe the difference between Satan's wrath and God's wrath? Is it just motive? Satan's doing it out of selfish, selfishness and God is doing it out of love, but they both use the same methods, the same means, the same external power inflicted upon others to cause them pain. No, Satan's wrath is the application of might, power, and force to inflict and cause pain, suffering, torment upon those whom his wrath is vented. It is the wrath of a creature, the wrath of imposed law, the infliction of punishment. God's wrath is the exact opposite. It is letting go the cessation or stopping of the use of God's divine power that he had been previously using to hold at bay the pain, the suffering, and the injury that comes from breaking his law. Sadly, however, far too many people have accepted the Romanization of Christianity, the lie that God's law functions like human law, and teach that God's wrath is the use of his power to inflict pain and suffering on people. And they put him in the role of the evil one. 
for instance, someone, and, and, and they will then read the scripture with this Roman view, and then they will take stories of scripture and interpret them to teach that God is functioning just like Satan, using power to punish. For instance, someone listening might say, sure, right, I bet that's what God's wrath is. He's just letting people go. That's what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. God just stopped using power. He didn't use any divine power there, right? And they use the story of Sodom and others like it, where God did use power to try to, to try and, and they do use those stories to try and prove that God's wrath functions the same as Satan's wrath. Those who do this do it because of the human law system so deeply embedded in their thinking that they only look at stories with a very superficial understanding. They see God use power. They see those people were killed. Boom, God's using wrath. They deny all the evidence of scripture that would enlighten them and overturn their understanding. It would be like observing a surgeon using a scalpel to amputate a gangrenous leg and alleging the surgeon's anger and wrath is the same as a pirate who uses a sword marauding to cut off someone's leg. I mean, in both cases, sharp instruments are cutting off legs. This is what people who use examples like Sodom, the flood, the 185,000 Assyrians, the 10 plagues of Egypt, and God's acts in the Old Testament do. They do not understand reality. They don't understand the situation. They don't understand God's methods and designs, and they take the most superficial level of activity. They will even claim God is punishing sin, yet the punishment for sin is eternal non-existence, the second death. And all those deaths in the Old Testament were first death. There's a resurrection for all those people. It cannot be punishment for sin. And even in their own false legal model, they will tell you that punishment comes after judgment and the judgment is future to the time of Sodom. So it can't be in their own model punishment for sin. But they deny these evidences and facts. So if Sodom and Gomorrah, so if at Sodom, God was not acting in wrath and he clearly was not passively just letting people go, he was not abandoning them simply to their consequences and he was not inflicting punishment for sin, then what was he doing? He was fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.15. The whole Old Testament narrative. He promised Messiah's coming. Satan is working to destroy the branch of the human family through whom Messiah is going to come. And even without those cities that he destroyed at Sodom, the seductive power of the pagan fertility cult nations around them were so strong that by the time Jesus came, only two tribes were left. Ten tribes have already been dispersed and assimilated and gone. And God, looking down the corridors of time with his foreknowledge, recognized I have to do an excision of this, of this necrotic branch and people that are so hardened against me. There's not even, and and he gives a story with Abraham, there's not even 10 righteous people. 10 people who are still saved. They're all hardened beyond any redemption. And if I don't act to put them to sleep, then they will successfully be used to completely destroy the branch of the human family through who Christ is coming. So I'm acting therapeutically. This is not punishment. This is diagnostic and therapeutic. And every one of those people will rise again and finish their life by their own free will choices. Get your mind around that. People get confused over this. At the end of the thousand years, all the wicked rise. The new Jerusalem is on the earth. There's a period of time that goes by, the Bible tells us, that they build implements of war. While the new Jerusalem is on earth, the gates are open. There's no angels like at the tree of life with flaming swords keeping people out. 
and no one comes in. And only when they march in mass on the city is the voice of Jesus heard saying, close the gates. Prior to that, however long they're building implements of war, anyone could come in. They don't. They stay out by their own free will choices. And this proves that God putting them in the grave in the Old Testament times in no way determined their eternal destiny. They choose it themselves, even with the evidence in the New Jerusalem, even with some loved one on the walls hanging a banner saying, please come in. They won't come in. God's action in Old Testament times was not infliction of punishment. It was an act of grace to simply put them in time out, suspend them in time, push the pause button on their life. And they come up out of the grave with the same current of thoughts as they went in. Now, I saw a couple of hands. Questions? Any questions? Okay. I got one. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me that, that it is very serious to, to kill somebody uh, with, with, with our killing, the first death, the first death. Because as you're pointing out, nobody comes out of that to, to, to surrender, coming to the new city. So that means everybody that, that does die now is, is going to be, be, be the second death. I didn't say that. Uh, you said it was pretty close. I said, I said those who were raised in the second resurrection won't go in. But I didn't say everybody that died in any of those circumstances will be raised in the second resurrection. So the platoons that came to arrest Elijah. That's true. Okay. Who do, how do we know there wasn't a 17, 16, 17, 18-year-old conscript drafted into Ahab's army and had a right heart with the Lord, but he was ordered to, to go out there and he got put into the grave? He'll come up in the first resurrection. They'll come up in the resurrection of the righteous if they're righteous and the wicked if they're wicked. Yeah. I think, you know, so many times people take these stories and turn it into that, you know, God is offended by my action or he's offended by my sin. And I don't, it's a hard thing for me to try to explain how you know, God's not offended by anything that you do. You can't offend Him by your sin. He wants to heal you and restore you, but you're not offensive. And you don't need to, you know, I'm so sorry that I've offended you, God. Exactly. Think about your child doing something, getting in an addiction, and ending up as, as the good Samaritan, uh, excuse me, the uh, prodigal son living with the pigs. You are not offended. You are grieved and you're longing for that child yeah. to turn back so you can clean them up yeah. okay so i think that's well said yeah. let's try to get through a couple more elements of the lesson really quick before we close it out wednesday's lesson it says the deceitfulness of the wicked way and i was going to read um compare again psalms 141 out of the uh, niv and the remedy but i don't know that we have time to do that um so let me talks about wickedness. Uh, so you can look in the notes and see that comparison or just look, look them up yourself to compare. I think it's an interesting comparison. Uh, how is it that wickedness deceives is the question. How will the beast of revelation deceive all but the very elect? When, when the beast of revelation rises to dominance, in my view, he, the beast does not rise with satanic worship cult centers and a being who comes in the cartoonish character with a horns, pitchfork, and tail. This is not what's going to happen. This, this, this beast is going to rise to do justice, to do what's right, to make things better. Satan, understand, when Satan comes impersonating Christ, notice what I said, impersonating, Satan does not want to be worshipped as Satan. Satan wants to be worshipped as Jesus. He has always coveted Jesus' position. 
And he does this for, and he wants to be worshiped as Christ for a variety of reasons. One, his own ego's jealousy sake. He wanted to usurp him in the hearts and minds. But also, I believe now, for spite sake, he wants people to worship him as Christ so he can look at Christ and say, ha, 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 oh, they claim to worship you, but they prefer a God like me. I'm the God that they love. They, and of course, the Pharisees said, come off the cross, use your power, overthrow the Romans, we'd worship you. This is the God. Satan's final deception upon the world is to impersonate Jesus Christ, and he can only successfully do this by getting the world, including the Christian world, to accept a version of Jesus, get your mind around this, that he can impersonate. We have to accept a version of Jesus that he can impersonate. And Satan leads false Christianity to do this by replacing God's design law with human imposed law and therefore teaching that justice is the use of righteous power to punish rule breakers. So Satan right now in the world is having his forces sow chaos, discord, anarchy, outrageous, irrational stuff that offends you. And men's heart, they're running to and fro, their hearts failing them for fear. And fear drives self-preservation. And into this chaos, at some point, Satan will appear impersonating Christ, claiming to be our Savior, who has come to set things right, to do justice. He will speak melodiously. He will apparently heal the sick, apparently raise the dead, offer salvation for all who will worship him, but he will state that justice requires that sin must be punished. And he doesn't want to punish anyone, so he will give opportunity for repentance by putting on economic sanctions, and no one can buy or sell save him who receives the mark, the mark of loyalty to his system by agreeing and applying his methods to your neighbor, marking yourself in, in, in the forehead, in your mind, because you agree that justice requires punishment, or marking yourself in your hand because you agree that it's right to punish your neighbor for not wearing a mask. But if they still refuse, and in the end, with tears in his eyes, he would claim that he is required by law and justice to inflict the death sentence upon those who will not worship him. He only loves them, and he's given them every opportunity. He's actually died for them. But it's only right and just to punish the lawbreaker. Isn't that, isn't that right, folks? And you can see the whole Christian world will go, this is our God, we have waited for him. This is what's coming, in my view. And in Thursday's lesson, I won't put it up there, well, you guys can throw it up on the board. Put that slide up on the board if, if you'd like. We won't read it. But the Psalms 111 and 112, the lesson turned us to 112. The psalmist, when he wrote the psalm, every line began with an advancing letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. I could not find any translation that did this. And so when I paraphrase both Psalms 111 and 112, I did this with the first 22 letters of the English language, where you can see that every line begins with the next advancing letter of the, of the English language, just to kind of bring over what the, the psalmist did in the Hebrew. Let's go ahead and close our prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are not like your enemy has made you out to be, that uh, you are a perfect creator God who built the universe to operate in harmony with your character of love and truth and freedom. 
and that you have embedded and encoded your laws into the operations of reality itself. And we ask that your spirit will come and take the victory of Christ, take away the fear, take away the the selfish drives and establish in us your law of love that we will love and honor you and within our entire being, heart, mind, soul, and strength and and love our neighbors as, as ourselves, that we can honor you in the way we We live and we can advance this final message of mercy to free hearts and minds from the fear and the self-centeredness, the survival drives that are dominating the world, and that we will be able to stand firm and give a true witness around this world so that those caught in the valley of decision, caught up in this world system, will see the better better truth, the better image that, that you have actually revealed in your life and leave that system, that fallen system behind and join with your people. We pray in your holy name. Amen.